A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to a new series of A Brush With, the podcast in which I talk to artists about their influences, including writers, composers, filmmakers and of course other artists and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Matthew Krishnu, one of Britain's most distinctive painters. Matthew draws on specific photographic images, including those of his family and his childhood in Bangladesh, yet his paintings are richly ambiguous as he complicates his source material through emotion memory, geopolitics, references to art history and literature, and the poetics of paint itself. Matthew's personal background is crucial to his work. He was born in 1980 in Bradford, UK, to a white British father who was a priest and an Indian theologian mother. The family moved to Dhaka, Bangladesh, and Matthew lived there between the ages of 1 and 12. Family photographs of that period have informed his best-known series, Another Country, featuring two boys based on images of Matthew and his older brother in the landscape or interiors, and Mission, which reflects on his father's role as a missionary in Bangladesh. One of the key works in the Mission series is Ordination, which depicts his father surrounded by brown figures, including a bishop behind him and a fellow priest next to him. It immediately conjures not just Matthew's own experience, but the spectre of colonialism, and therefore, potentially, his personal discomfort. He is said that in this picture, he's deliberately constructing his father as a white priest in the third person, and not simply as his dad going about his work. He's interested in painting whiteness, and as he puts it, unsettling it in the context of racial injustice in relation to imperial history and in terms of how that subject has been represented in art and wider culture. In that sense, it's a quietly unsettling painting. It underscores a crucial balance in Matthew's practice and one you'll hear him discuss in relation to others between the personal, the political and the art historical. You see this tension perfectly expressed, for instance, in Mission School, in which young pupils gather in a mostly bare room around a tiny reproduction of Leonardo's Last Supper, or a version of it, with what looks like a blackboard in the background. Most of the students are simply described, little more than head shapes on body shapes, but they are clearly brown-skinned. And at the far right, one is turned in profile, away from the Leonardo, in apparent reflection or even rejection. He resembles Matthew's depictions of himself in the Another country series. So we ponder what this is telling us about his position relating to the circumstances of his upbringing, the religious teachings he experienced, or Christianity itself. For Matthew, the mission series is not so much a body of religious paintings as paintings about religion. And the same is true of House of God, a series of near-abstract paintings in which churches and crosses might form a tiny part of the composition, and Religious Workers, a series depicting priests, a rabbi, and a hospital chaplain at work during the Covid pandemic where many doing similar jobs were among the most at risk of infection. Even in those works, Matthew depicted people he knew through his family, so they were part of his ongoing project. He said he can't simply work to commission to paint portraits, for example. There has to be a personal element that compels him to tackle his subject. 
The Another Country series, informed by those family photographs of Matthew and his brother, is a fascinating exploration of image and memory. The two boys might sit at the prow of a boat, ride a horse, climb trees, brandish bows and arrows, stand over the skeleton of a dead animal, or be almost swallowed up by epic landscapes in Kashmir. They appear simultaneously precise, specific about particular experiences, people, cultures and places, and poetically ambiguous, able to prompt our own recollections, particularly of childhood. Among the most personal of all his images are those in the two series, Interiors and In Sickness and In Health. Many of them depict the writer Ushi Gatwood, Matthew's late wife, and trace their shared life in paintings made over a period of 16 years before Ushi's untimely death from cancer in late 2021 and posthumously. Spare but beautifully and tenderly painted, they begin with Girl with a Book in 2007, in which Ushi is a child, and then mark several rites of passage, from marriage, through parenthood, to the tremendously moving images of Ushi in hospital and in her final days, with the later pictures being effectively collaborative works developed conceptually by the couple. Crucially, in terms of Matthew's perennial art historical context, many of the interior's paintings feature a bed, that enduring artistic symbol of the stages of life. In an interview in a new monograph on his work, Matthew told me that his paintings are concerned with processing something that's been experienced or understood through visual form and language, rather than with memorialising his subjects, whether that's Ushi, his father, or his own childhood, through those family photographs. And it's those images that have triggered so many memorable and intriguing paintings with which I began our conversation. Was there an epiphany where he happened upon them and suddenly realised that they could provide him with the key motifs of his work? I knew that they existed. So right from my BA years, I'd thought about, you know, painting photographs of, say, myself, my brother, my parents together on a sofa or something. But they felt too much like actual photographs as opposed to knowing really how to translate them. It was a progression over time where um, I was drawing from my imagination for a set of paintings of my wife, Urshi. And those were all small A5 sketches, which um, I then reposed and recreated as photographs. So that interim point between having a drawing, which was directly from my head, and then the photograph, which was from reality, allowed me to then refer to both of them, um, both the photograph and the drawing and the painting was in a way a a conversation between the two things and it it was like a a bridge I suppose that the photograph was was a bridge between the original conception and then the the final painting and in the final painting I realized I could take liberties that just working directly from the photo or directly from the drawing wouldn't allow. And in terms of the relationship your paintings have with photography you're not especially interested in the condition of photography in the way that Gerhard Richter is in that kind of dialogue between the painted surface and the photographic surface for instance yeah I mean in a way the paintings have been developing I finished my BA in 2001 and the paintings have developed really as that history of painting has unfolded because we sort of really well I mean someone like Peter Doy could already started 
broadening that language of painting. But then you had someone like Leek Timons followed by Sass now, where the conversation was so much more about the the photograph as object. I knew in a way that the works that interested me the most of someone like Richter or Sassnall indeed were the ones which would give something of a window into their worlds. I mean, Richter, you know, when he paints a back of one of his daughter's heads or something, they they have an entry point into an emotional landscape, which a lot of his work from photos don't have in terms of emotional resonance, that is. And that's what he sets out for. So for me, I wanted to get directly to that point of emotional connection with the subject without the barrier of the lens, if you like. You know, that whole discourse around the photograph, how people stand for a snapshot, questions of the casual or, you know, studio photography, that didn't interest me in terms of how I wanted to take on what I wanted to paint. And in that respect, finding family photographs and painting from family photographs and photographs that I had personally set up was the way of, in a way, I could leave the photograph behind, unlike somebody that was quoting photographs. Really, for me, the photographs were just a vehicle to then deal with those subjects that I wanted to paint most. Absolutely. And, and in a way, would you say the kind of memory and the emotions that come with memory really helped you in that sense, in terms of escaping a photographic source or whatever? Yeah, um, it's about an emotional connection to the subject. I mean, it's the old adage, you know, write what you know, paint what you know has always been important to me. And in a way, paint who you know who you care about, or at least who you have an emotional connection with, are all part of that. And that also goes for landscapes and places. And to paint, even if I haven't been to a particular place that there's a photograph of in a photo album, I can visualise it in the same way that, you know, in a way you can only dream of things you've experienced or been to in some way and obviously that's also channeled in these days through film and and imagery but that sense of actually being in a particular place with a particular atmosphere and resonance was was always important to me and I think it's there in the body when you're painting and when you're looking for that sense of recognition in the painted surface, that you're communicating something that you know, that you felt, that excites you in some way. So, yeah, so I think personal experience and how that translates into painting has always been key. And then, of course, there are, if you like, global subjects or uh, topical subjects or subjects which are complicated in related to geopolitical issues where in a way you access them through these very personal memories or images i'm interested in the extent to which there's a sort of sorting process of the imagery in terms of accessing those kind of subjects i think over the decade or so 
that have painted these series, there has been a sorting process and there's been particular moments. I remember washing up one evening and suddenly thinking, mission, that's what I want to call these paintings of my father in religious situations. And the very fact that it appalled me slightly <laughs> was an indicator that it was something that I wanted to mine because it's such a loaded term in history and it is something that could have quite a, a reductive reading. Um, but it, it was that, the expanse of that, all that that brings that I thought, then, then I knew that whenever I looked at photographs of my father in robes and so on, that it belonged to that series. Then I was painting churches and landscapes so where the the paint would run quite freely and there may be if only in the title a, a reference to the fact that it's a church or often a small cross and later on at, at the beginning they were in my mission series and then I realized that it was a subsection and again that title that stuck was the one that I found problematic I called it House of God and I knew that was the right title for it Again, it opens itself up to misinterpretation and uh, perhaps it's the most ironic kind of title of all those, but I know what I'm, I'm doing in it. And so I suppose those global historical currents have evolved through the sifting process over a very long period of time in terms of discrete groups and series. And that's really how I paint. I sort of paint a world that's all interconnected, but have these, if you like, themes that I want to mine further. Absolutely. And, and of course, working in the series, they sort of overlap as well, don't they? You have images of the two boys in series that are beyond another country, which is the sort of notional series which relates to them. It, it seems to me that it helps you to work in series. You have a kind of purpose, but then those series it have a kind of improvisational quality to them as well. Yeah, there's a permeability to the series. And I like the fact that um, I don't really know where a particular painting is going to sit sometimes. There's a painting of uh, myself and my brother in a bedroom in a four-poster bed, and there's a Leonard da Vinci Last Supper print on the wall. And I have that in my um, Another Country series on my website, but in the recent monograph, I put that as the last of the mission paintings. So I think that permeability particularly relates to expatriates, which is a series which, again, is calling on the imagery of myself and my brother as children in Bangladesh. But it's loaded in terms of who they often stand with. And um, putting the two boys, for instance, next to two childhood friends of ours, two white British childhood friends of ours, in a painting, two girls or white figures, often white adults. The charge that that then creates in the composition, I realised was its own series and sometimes it's just the Westerners alone in either, say, Indian dress or an Indian landscape. But, for instance, I've recently 
shifted. There's a 2013 painting um, called Safari of the two boys with a Western man in a safari hat. And I'd always had that as another country, but I realised, no, actually, that probably is the first expatriates painting. So, And that was, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I realised that. So <laughs> it is it is very much a question of um, discovery for me. But it, it conjures up this idea that, to a certain extent, you know, no artist need be a historian of their own work. But whenever I've talked to you, I'm really clear that you are quite a historian of your own work. You have a clear understanding of how things fit together and so on. But then that also relates to this idea of revisiting the works, re-imbuing them with new imagery or reorganising the imagery in some way so that you go back and then, for instance, you might make a much larger or a much smaller image of an earlier work. Tell me about that. Yeah, very much so. I think so much of it is about following that intuitive hit of excitement. You know, when you look at a series of work and you feel that there's more juice in the in the <laughs> fruit yet to squeeze out, there's there's like a particular image which you know has a different life in, say, a different scale or perhaps um, emphasising different elements to it. And I think that, again, that's the particularity of painting over the the photographic image source, for instance, in that it's almost like you pull out different volume levels of emphasising something, pushing something else back, reorganising an image compositionally, and always in relation to the body, how a brushstroke translates to a larger scale or how a viewer will perhaps be in a position where they look up at, say, two boys in a tree looking down at them because it's a larger canvas compared to something which has more of a sort of photographic size and that the different feeling and sensation that those scales have. So, yeah, it's a question of revisiting, exploring a painterly language as well as a visual or thematic language. And in terms of being a historian of one's own work, it's essentially in the studio you're guided largely by intuition and the, the, the sort of gauge of boredom and excitement. I'm not one of those painters that says, oh, that part was really boring. I had to sort of spend ages that I could get to the good bits. You know, essentially I need to be fully invested in, in each part of the process of the painting and, and excited by it in a formal way so that's the thing that guides me what do I want to paint next but in terms of the thinking that's all the rest of the time that I'm not painting I will be going back to those I'll be thinking of um, imagery particularly when I'm in the midst of a series of works at night I like to visualize each of the paintings and again you feel in your body really the excitement or the the sense of possibility with certain things and like I say sometimes you simply think oh that belongs to that or that's called that but that's all the other times that you're not in the studio but I don't actually do that kind of thinking when I'm in the studio painting. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests now. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? I know that I didn't fall in love really until 
the last few months of my BA where I was studying sculpture and I'd got bored of it, essentially. I, it wasn't exciting me and nor were looking at people like Anthony Carreo I was looking at. I was really engaging with sculpture, but the real love kick came when a friend of mine was looking at a catalogue of Basquiat's work. And I didn't get it at first, but I knew that it was something that I found compelling and it, it was a light being switched on, really. The edge which Basquiat had in terms of his formal mark-making, coupled with the intellect of the written word or the quoted imagery, like the Rokeby Venus quotations and so on, and the depth of that quotational imagery that we were going back to, you know, Egyptian boats from ancient art to those hobo signs from New York that were scratched onto city walls. It really was like a world opened up looking at what Basquiat was able to do both formally, politically and personally. And it was a while, really, until I'd seen Basquiat's paintings in the flesh. But at the age of 23, my brother and I got a flight to Paris and at Musée Maillol, they had um, a Basquiat retrospective. And I remember walking around the rooms thinking, in the catalogues, I would think, oh, I like that. I'm not so keen on that. I think he's done it well there. But there was something of... Um, being with the works as they're meant to be seen for all their sort of creased canvas glory and, and dripped paints and the scale. They had the mother and father paintings from 1982 there and just the scale of them. Just, I liked everything, basically. It, it, and did it make you become a painter? Would you say that that was a sort of gateway drug to, to painting, as it were? There was an interim period where the same friend of mine who still now is one of two critical friends who gives me feedback on my work he'd been looking at my sculpture works and he had for some time noticed I was disengaged from the sculpture work and I know I was I wasn't going into art college I was getting letters telling me that you know unless I went blah blah I might lose place etc and he said look I don't see you in the work and I was doing a lot of drawing for what I was then going to make in sculpture. And he would say, no, it's actually your drawings, it's your 2D work that I'm more interested in. Then looking at Basquiat and then swiftly all the conversations around that period of time, you know, the trans avant-garde painters, Clemente, um, Cucci, Chia, you know, these people, Miguel Barcello, Cy Twombly, you know, so you'd look at Basquiat, then you'd get into Cy Twombly, then obviously Rauschenberg. It was more that it all happened at once, that I was already sort of primed to to step away from what had essentially run its course with the sculpture. And Basquiat and all this, this other community of painting is what essentially I, I started doing in the last few months of my BA in fine art, and I haven't looked back since. How fascinating. Which historical artist do you turn to the most today? El Greco. I forget when it was, I think 2004 at the National Gallery 
they had a retrospective of his and I remember walking around the rooms and thinking to myself, this is why I want to paint. And it was not even really about what he was painting. It was just the feeling of the colour, the marks, the sense of walking into the world of a painter made real, made physical. And, you know, I, I was seeing many other historic artists around those years, but someone like Velasquez, for instance, I saw that National Gallery show. But it didn't do to me what, what El Greco did. And it's, it's hard really to put that into words, what it is that speaks to me across the centuries in a way... I look at his work now and I see a sort of a presentness and a familiarity to it. It doesn't feel remote. I suppose that's partly because of the way that El Greco is so much part of our 20th century canon of painting via Picasso and even those questions of elongation that you find in people like Modigliani or arguably Alice Neal and so on. Mm -hmm. um, that, yeah. that sense of freedom from the perfectly proportioned figure. There's a weirdness about it. I mean, it's still, even now, when you look at El Greco, it's almost hallucinatory in so many different ways, of course. There's that sort of mystical power that they have. But there's a weirdness in the handling of the paint, which you can imagine at the time must have just seemed so distinct from what everybody else was doing. Absolutely. It's a complete voice that El Greco has. And... I suppose it is also that, that mystical, potentially spiritual element. And, I mean, there's a particular painting which I remember seeing in a book and El Greco's crucifixion of essentially nearly a half-naked European body in front of an open sky. I think it's something like crucifixion with two donors because on either side at the bottom there are two crops figures of people in almost suppliant sort of leaning forwards holding hands together in front of this cross but they look strange like cutouts um, so you take the sort of the pomp of the religious church world and then you undercut it by almost like the backdrop of the church drops away and you have an abyss really the sky becomes like a void, you know, shot through with light and clouds. And I suppose a sense of sublime and awe that I don't physically feel when I look at, say, Caspar David Friedrich, but I do feel when I see El Greco, because for me, it's an awe that is known personally by El Greco, that he's quite comfortable with this tumbling immense of sky clouds. I mean, they're ludicrous compositions of, <laughs> of, of angels tumbling from the sky down onto massed, you know, robed people. They speak a completely different language to what we know in our cultural life today. But you feel that this is somebody who is painting what he knows, which I love. Absolutely. I'd like to explore a little bit about the moments where you choose to make direct references in your work to historic masters. So the most obvious is Leonardo da Vinci. This is because you actually had the Last Supper above your bed as a child, right? 
Yes, a small print framed above a four-poster bed in Bangladesh. And it was never thought of as a historic painting. It was simply Jesus and the disciples. It wasn't even a reproduction of the mural, right? It was a reproduction of a reproduction of that composition, effectively. Exactly, a reproduction of a copy from one of the many, I don't know, South American or potentially Indian painters... But once I started uh, Googling that particular image, you have so many. Obviously, there are already actual painted copies, for instance, in the Royal Academy. They have that large scale one on now. But I I mean the ones that are essentially simplified for printing and for using as religious teaching tools, uh, particularly around the global south, I feel, around South America. And there was really so much historic painting in my childhood but in a way I'm finding those in the backgrounds of otherwise innocent photographs so you know we'll be at my grandma's house or something and it'll be somebody's birthday grandma in India and uh, there'll be brightly coloured bunting on the wall and there'll be people in saris and Indian dress and then there'll be a white Christ, you know, essentially a white dead European on the cross. And at the time, we didn't think anything of it. It was just part of the background. But over the years, finding those images has really opened up that whole particular part of mission, which are about the interior spaces which have the European Christian figures and often vernacular bunting, garlands, flowers and so on that you get from India to show how essentially the European culture has translated, uh, the European way of depicting Christian forms has been translated and represented. And you sort of emphasise that, don't you? The most extreme example might be Pink Christ, where you have that very clearly European crucifixion. You zone in on it and it is a a pink body. And that, that sort of tangible absurdity, one really feels that when looking at the work. Yes, and absurdity, I think, is exactly it. That's what I want. And, you know, in my mind, at least... Uh, level of humour. I mean, the fact I call it Pink Christ, I mean, it is absurd. It's a European man wearing a loincloth in somebody's kitchen. And next to it is a vase of flowers. Um, There are two paintings. There's a Pink Christ with flowers and just one of just the Pink Christ. And yes, absolutely. It's about picking out these elements which I've found buried within otherwise innocent photographs and another moment actually which triggered some of what I do in House of God where I might just have the background of a church in the margins at the top was John Stazaka's wonderful exhibition at the White Chapel Gallery and particularly at the end wall this small set of collages we had done exactly that chosen the smallest elements of a composition that most people wouldn't look at in a photograph, but when you hone it down to just those elements, it's what I'm doing in those paintings, honing down to things you might easily dismiss or not feel the absurdity of. But um, yes, I want the viewer to, to look at Christ almost as if for the first time. I wanted also to talk about The Convalescent, which is a particularly important painting of your wife, Ushi Gatwood, who's a great writer. And you conceived it with her almost as a collaboration. But again, it's a very knowing reference to a particular Gwen John painting. Can you say more about that? 
Yes, so Ushi was in hospital or certainly in and out of hospital for long periods of time in September till December 2021. And um, I had actually been commissioned by the Coventry Biennial. So I was going to be showing paintings that revisited my interior series of paintings, essentially of Ushi and uh, very occasionally of our daughter. And I was meant to be painting at exactly that period of time, August, September. Then she had a terrible terminal cancer diagnosis. And my instinct was, you know, I can't paint. I need to be with Ushi. And Ushi said, you know, you've always painted me. And that really is the case since I first met her in 2006. And she said, paint me now. So... When I visited her, I took photographs which became hospital room whips, which were shown as part of that Coventry biennial. But Ushi herself thought of the convalescent. We both love Gwen John, and it, it was Ushi's favourite Gwen John painting. Gwen John paints in series, and that she'll often revisit an image, whether it's um, Mary Puspan, the uh, the nun or in this this instance the convalescent with small changes of where the book is how the head is tilted essentially of a young woman reading but it has that air of malaise that sort of sickness around it so Ushi asked a close friend of hers who had visited her, her in hospital to essentially recreate that image photographically so that I could then paint from it. And I've made three versions of it. And the first version, which Ushi saw, we both liked as a painting, but we agreed it wasn't really Ushi. It didn't kind of feel like her in a way that the hospital room paintings did. I did a second version last year. And then the third version I finished pretty much on the final day before we had to sign off the book to go to print. And it was important to me that I caught a version of her which didn't just reference the composition of the painting, but also felt was her. So, And is it right that you also involved your daughter in this process, that effectively you and Pearl, your daughter, would look at these images and she would say, yes, that's mummy? You know, it was that kind of a level of discussion which you had about, about the works. Absolutely. So yes, that's not mummy, was what uh, she said when she saw the convalescent, the first version, and she said, absolutely, that's mummy, in the third version. And I sent it to people who didn't know Ushi as well, and they still went for the third version. So I think it's not just about likeness, but there's that alchemy, that magic of... um, when I can recognise someone within a painting. But yes, my daughter has been an important critical eye right over the years in terms of my paintings of the two boys as well. And of course, I'm painting about my childhood really over the whole period of her childhood as well. Brushwith is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. The free app offers access to more than 170 cultural organisations through a single download, with new guides being added regularly. Among the most recent additions are the UK Gallery's DCA in Dundee and Christchurch Mansion in Ipswich. 
They join a host of other British public galleries and museums on Bloomberg Connects, including the Hayward Gallery in London, where Matthew Krishnu featured in the 2021 exhibition Mixing It Up, MK Gallery in Milton Keynes, and Fruit Market in Edinburgh. If you download the Fruit Market Guide on Bloomberg Connects, you'll find an in-depth feature on its latest show, Poor Things, which has been curated by the artists Emma Hart and Dean Kenning, and focuses on discussions around class. A video gives a tour of the show, and in audio interviews, artists in the exhibition discuss their work and its relation to the theme. Also on the guide are spotlights on Fruit Market's radical history and its permanent projects in Edinburgh. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We've already talked about various contemporary artists like Richter and, and, and John Stezaker and so on, but, but which contemporary artists do you most admire? From seeing his Art Now show in 2009, Hervin Anderson, he was sort of a beacon of, of what can be done in painting and really bridging that three-point question that I found in the work of Basquiat between the political the personal and the art historical. And Hervin has it in droves, and he always has. And I admire greatly the way he doesn't need to talk about his work particularly because it's all there in the painting, in the series, in the way he'll revisit images, in the way he'll title a painting like Country Club, which you know is significant because of the wire between the viewer and the scene and I love the handling as well at Art Now at Tate it was the Barbershop series yeah fantastic series so beautiful whether there's the back of a head which is something I'm interested in often including or an absent figure one always feels the reality of the place and it's a place that's been dissolved and recreated with colour tones and compositions which always speak there's nothing provisional incidental doodly filling in about it there's always a point to every part of the canvas and his most recent monograph with Risley superb book one really feels that the tautness has not slackened in the two decades of painting. And yeah, that's really, some achievement, isn't it? That length of time to have that level of consistency across the work. Yeah. That's it, that's it. And the ambition of some of the scale of that most recent Thomas Dane show, I think there's a painting called Grace Jones of a woman coming down the steps, and it's, it's mesmerising. And yes, he is a 21st century master in the way that we talk about Gerhard Richter as a 20th century painting master, I think. Hervin Anderson is one of our greats. And of course, around Hervin, Hervin, the language perhaps wouldn't exist if Peter Doig hadn't first started, you know, I imagine it like breaking down the nettles and weeds of particular <laughs> painting discourse that around, say, the time of my BA, 98 till 2001, the sort of so-called post-painting discourse had largely won or so it seemed, and unless you were Gary Hume or Fiona Ray painting with a distance from their subject matter or someone like Glenn Brown, who was shortlisted for the Turner Prize during my BA, that's essentially the discourse around painting 
then. But then Peter Doig was painting large-scale works around then. And I suppose seeing Doig in the Saatchi Gallery had sort of Marlene Dumas, uh, Doig, others I don't remember, in a big painting show. That started to open up ground. And then the figuration, in a way that Hervin Anderson and Peter Doig, when they paint People, they're generally within a landscape scene. Seeing Lynette Yadamboaki's show in, I think it was 2008, at Gasworks Gallery in London. Again, that trio of things that I, I find so important, the political, the personal and the art historical, I felt Lynette really opened up so much ground. And I can't separate my own practice from those precedents, really. And that overall wave of the opening up, it's almost like a giant thawing of an iceberg in a positive way, not in a <laughs> apocalyptic <laughs> It didn't way. all melt away. And it, no, but, it, but yeah, absolutely. It felt like painting could be many things again, whereas it felt like painting was in a very narrow place in the period you're talking about in the end of the 90s, perhaps. Absolutely. And I suppose what interests me is I knew what I was painting from 2005 onwards. That was really my first work I think of is a small painting called Boy on a Bed, which is a small interior scene with essentially a, a brown child sitting the back of his head largely um, with a small red car behind. And I knew that was me as a child. And from then, I was invested in in that figuration and and interiors, which then eventually became landscapes as well. And so it's just been wonderful to see the conversation around painting and what can be painted and the ambition as well of painters um, expand. And actually, just a couple of months ago, seeing Mohammed Sami's show at Camden Arts Centre and having shown with him at the Mixing It Up show, that was the first time I saw his work, which I thought was superb. And to see him pull it off so magnificently in the Camden Arts Centre, again, it thrills me. We're in your studio now and I normally ask artists what they have pinned to their studio wall. I can see what you've got pinned to your studio wall. And it's really interesting. Very often I'm hearing painters telling me I don't have anything on the studio wall. I can't have things on the studio wall. You've got lots on the studio wall here. How often are you revolving them or do they stay present? I have two studio image banks, if you like. And one is my studio door, which <laughs> has largely stayed pretty consistent for the last 10 years. And it has... An Alice Neal Twins painting. It has some of those early 2008 Lynette Yodamboaki paintings, an F.N. Souza painting on it, a Sassnell, one of the barbershop paintings, Chagall Hopper. That's largely been there, and they're postcard-sized. Then I have um, A4 or A3 prints on the wall behind me in the studio, which is in a way, a third wing to the generation of work for me. One wing is photographs, which are neatly stacked up in the corner at the moment, but up until, well, I was still in the midst of painting a couple of days ago, they're in every sort of inch of the studio floor, so I'll walk over them as well, simply because I need to have things in front of me to trigger that excitement that I'm always looking for. I think, mm. oh, that could be a painting. And in a way, having the images from art history out there, 
is twofold. One is it's compositional and two, it's also about brush marks. And that's what you get since the smartphone was invented, the ability to um, photograph close details of a Manet or a Rembrandt or an Alice Neal and have them printed out and on your wall. It all feeds into the the work. And then behind me, painters like Noah Davis, you know, I, I loved his work long before his untimely death. And um, images from art history like there's an Ajanta uh, painting of a, of a Buddha. To have those things up against uh, Rembrandt's The Polish Rider, which I saw for the first time in the Frick last year, one has emotional responses to them because in a way, yes, it's a printout, but it's also a reminder of being in front of those works. So, yeah, it's key to to have those reference points. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? Since the pandemic opened up, I suppose I've been most frequently to the National Gallery to see things like the Titian Show and um, the Winslow Homer Show and often just to go back to individual works. But overall, and um, having recently seen the magnificent Peter Doig Show there, the Courtauld. You worked there, didn't you? Exactly. So you can imagine the immense privilege of being in the public programs department with the Courtauld from, I think, 2009 till about 2016, 17. I had access to the collection in a really intimate way in that I would lead young people mainly around the collection and sometimes lead workshops, for instance, at the Soutine exhibition of the chefs and bellboys. Oh, nice. Because of the uniforms of the Soutine painted subjects. Young people that had visited, they had a day with Soutine. We looked around the exhibition and then they painted from life in one of the wonderful basement spaces. And they painted one of the security guards from the Courtauld in his uniform. Oh, very nice. And so... I know those paintings in the permanent collection intimately at the Courtauld. And yes, I mean, felt a slight disappointment when you walk into that superb grand second floor room and you don't see the fully Béger where it always was, <laughs> you know, commanding the space. Or indeed, there's the small room at the Courtauld as it used to be where you'd walk in and on your right-hand side there'd be Van Gogh, the painting with his ear bandaged. And they'd had to send it to Amsterdam ahead of the building works that were going to take place at the gallery. And I remember walking in and it not being there and feeling it as an emotional loss, as if it was a friend that you always see in a particular place. And suddenly there was another work there. And um, having stood in front of it for five, ten minutes at the time, as with things like the Folie Berger painting, talking to young people who are often seeing things for the first time, like, oh, these are prints from Japan behind Van Gogh, or look at the tiny legs in the top left-hand corner of the <laughs> Folie Berger. You know, to have looked so intimately and felt the physical presence, weight, scale of those works, it was a very particular experience. And then, of course, there's an enrichment in some respects to see the rehang, for instance, the way the, the superb Bruegel painting, the one in Grisai of the sort of, you know, cast the first stone work, which is stupendous and it, it's easier to spot now. 
And Rubens, I love the Rubens sketches. The whole of the Rubens output is now in more glorious attention there. So something's lost, something's gained. But the Courtauld, I'd say, has had quite a formative part in my studio practice. And actually, the um, Dejeuner Souleb um, version, which is now in a more prominent place in, in the hang, I've, I've got photos of, and details of that, which I took myself printed out on the wall, because I love the way the figures fit and sit within the landscape. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? In 2003, I received an Arts Council England grant to visit India and to research art there, both contemporary and ancient. And um, I mentioned Basquiat earlier. Via Basquiat, I discovered, for instance, in through a book called Painted Prayers, these wonderful folk art motifs that were painted of figures on the sides of mud huts by village women in rural parts of India. I wanted to see things like that because they had the same Dubuffet, Basquiat-esque brut quality, if you like, of mark-making, simplification. And Indian folk art, And its relation to the contemporary painters in India was something that really interested me, as did Indian miniatures. And I'd heard about the wonderful cave temple paintings of Ajanta and the sculptures in Ellora, which are both in this ancient part of India, Maharashtra, near what is now Mumbai. And um, I wanted to visit them. And it's interesting that, obviously... Some parts of Indian art I'd come through just in my own childhood. For instance, there were these incredible comics called Amar Chitra Gatha, which were of Indian mythology stories, but all as comics. You have Shiva or Krishna and so on, loads of beheading and, you know, multiple (laughs) arrows in the air, sort of, you know, pin cushioning the enemy and loads of people in blue. Incredible comic. So I obviously I had a whole sense of an Indian idiom. And of course, we had prints of Mughal miniatures framed on our home wall as well. But I'd also come to things like Ajanta, the stylization of Ajanta via reading about, say, Kirchner. He loved those paintings and created some bather paintings um, based around those figures. And also the phenomenal art historian Bartha Mitter was so important to me reading his book Much Maligned Monsters where he talked about the cave sculptures at Elora so I wanted to see it myself so in the same year that I'd flown to see the Basquiat show with my brother at Paris I put together a must-have of places to visit in India which included the three major cities Delhi, Kolkata, Mumbai to see contemporary galleries and also to go to Ajanta and Delora. But it was really what I could mine in seeing that art for the first time. So, um, Did it match up to your expectations when you actually got there? Well, what's interesting is um, two things happened, and this is why it really changed the way I see the world. The Ajanta, Elora, I visited it all alone 
So I have family in West Bengal, but I travelled entirely alone as I was 23 years old. I mean, I kind of look back with a sense of vertigo slightly now because, um, <laughs> you know, it was like a 35-hour train journey from Kolkata to Mumbai and then long, long packed little uh, van journeys, taxis where there were probably 10 people in a four-person taxi to get to these temples, essentially cave temples. It was an extraordinarily vivid experience. I can still remember the smell of the bat dung in the um, in the temples, in the the caves. I remember coming in on the low lit sculptures and the paintings. I remember the fact that um, you're not allowed to take photographs there. Fair enough if it's got flash and so on. But that meant I was drawing. I have all the sketches that I did there. So I was doing all this drawing. It absolutely exceeded all expectations and yes there are things about the language of how I I like to leave faces in particular quite open that has a lineage to those Buddhist paintings in a way that's quite different from say a Rembrandt oil painted face. The other side of it was the contemporary side. I hadn't experienced contemporary art while I was in India until I was there on that visit and to be there and to meet, say, the Rax Media Collective, this is 2003, and Monica Narula very kindly took time to, you know, look through my work and talk about what I was doing, show me what they were doing. Showing Monica, say, those paintings that I was working out at the time that quoted folk art motifs. She was kind about them, but I could see that they were in a completely different discourse to what was happening in international art from an Indian artist's perspective. And it was a paradigm shift for me to think, I'm quoting these things because I love them formally, but I can't own them, you know. There's something empty in the gesture. And they were referencing a language that so many contemporary painters in India had already fully mined, you know, whether it's Benod Bihari Mukherjee or, um, you know, obviously people like F.N. Souza. And uh, I could sense that I was treading old ground and I hadn't been aware of it until I went to see Shubhad Gupta's, one of his first shows in a newly opened then gallery called Nature Mort, which is still growing strong in Delhi. So... That twin thing of reorientating my sense of where I was with my own contemporary art and indeed what international art is and plugging into something ancient and brilliant in the Ajanta and Elora caves and also Elephanta near Mumbai, those sculptures as well. It was all, yeah, life-changing. Which writers or poets do you return to the most? I studied fine art and English literature in my BA. And I guess that's because I felt that thing of worlds opening up, whether it's in literature or the whole of an artist's practice. And it's something that I really love and that I look for in writing. So, I mean, really, so much of my life is now bound up in literature, partly through my wife, my late wife, Ushi Gatwood because she was writing just as everything in the forthcoming monograph was painted since I met Ushi in 2006. Everything in her collection, which came out in September 2021, was written since then as well. 
And it's a short story collection called English Magic. And in a way, just as I paint her, I often feature as like a husband character in her stories. So I return to that, and I will do probably every year for the rest of my life. But you see, art for me, it's not separate from life. It would be like saying friends are separate from your life. They're not. They're a part of you. And through, say, meeting Ushi in 2006, she um, got me onto Raymond Carver, a short story writer. And I devoured everything, all the short story collections. He also tragically died early, I think at 50, 51. And I introduced Ushi to Jumpa Lahiri, who's a essentially Boston Bengali short story writer, the collection and interpreter of maladies Ushi then loved. I'd say both of those, but particularly Carver, in a way part of my grieving process is visiting the work that Ushi and I love together. So The Convalescent is an example, rereading Carver, rereading her own writing. But rereading Carver, I realised how much in his writing is there in what I know you've talked about of ambiguity or openness in my compositions and is certainly there in Ushi's writing, the way a story can end uh, seemingly abruptly but with resonance. I think that sense of the tautness of a composition where no word is out of place, it twangs, you know, they thrum with life, the Carver stories. We've used this term in our discussions, productive ambiguity, so that there's sufficient material there to prompt all manner of kind of associations and yet at the same time it leaves it open for you for each individual reader or viewer in the case of art to discover something for themselves there. Absolutely and that ambiguity is set up in being thrown into a window in a way a short story has the similarity to a poem or a painting and that unlike a novel it has to all be there in the form of a few pages really a lot of the time and so They have to create enough to create a believable world. And with Carver, my goodness, you believe the people, you believe the tragedy, you believe the the sense of being on the edge, on the brink of often, you know, breakdown, psychological or grief, but all couched in the everyday. So there's nothing histrionic about it. It's the tone and then the titling, you know, a small good thing, cathedral, elephants, what we talk about when we talk about love. They're immense titles for often small stories. And um, yeah, all of this feeds into what I love about art. What music or other audio do you listen to while you're working? I'm a child of the 90s, so, well, that was my teens anyway. So before 95, when I was 15, I never really thought of being an artist, but I was absolutely listening to music. And that sense of cultural opening up that was happening, whether it was Bristol or London, obviously Manchester, the sense of scenes with particular artists and the the opening up of things like tricky and Portis Head, both from Bristol, and having seen both of them live as well around that time. You know, those figures 
were very real and alive to me. Martina, the singer with um, Tricky, I mean, you know, a friend of ours knew her uh, from school. You felt that these people were, you know, really at the cutting edge suddenly of a global sound and really it's unmatched that sound because it's so unselfconscious you know there's the terrible term of something like trip hop where a lot of it's so <laughs> derivative whereas what they were doing then was creating a sound which was was new and the friend of mine introduced me to so much of what was going on in New York around the Wu-Tang Clan and obviously all of that around a tribe called Quest and mm. the low end theory and Naz's Ilmatic and all of that was happening in New York and then suddenly Tricky was over there recording an EP, the Hell EP with the RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan. This sense of new voices through hip-hop, through dance, through drum and bass. I mean, Talvin Singh. And I lived it. I loved it. It's tragic in a way that Britpop caricatures so much of what happened in Britain in the 1990s, isn't it? Because I mean, it's it was a, so productive, that period. That's it. And it's the same with painting. You know, there are artists which are there for the mainstream and the discourse and then there are artists which you know essentially grab you they become as important as a friend and and following all of that from then till now so the different iterations of Bjork's sounds over the year and the way that that has fed into me listening to a lot of Arca and the subsequent new forms. There haven't been that many, obviously. There's been grime and reggaeton, but the way that Arca now samples the reggaeton, you know, it's a conversation that's continued. But in a way, whatever I listen to now, and of course Radiohead and now Tom York and what he does individually and how that's had massive influence on so many artists now, in a way, yes, there was a hotbed. There was this point where there was really world-class music being made. And I listened to it now and all the different offshoots of it is very much part of me what other media influence your work again in terms of worldview and certain art forms or certain pieces shaking me a little bit and really having a big impact there are a few films one was the shuchuji thrai bothir banchali um trilogy which are black and white rural scenes. Uh, in fact, the, the the father figure there wants to be an artist of some sort. Um, the atmosphere that's soaked into the music, into the composition, into the characters. Quite often, if I'm painting rural scenes, I know I'm referring to the same world of the unchanged rural landscape of India. Another film that essentially felt quite jaw-dropping was a Michael Haneck's film Hidden which explores the undercurrents, the hidden um, legacies of uh, the Algerian colonial massacres and the way that interpenetrates into the everyday you know there's scenes of immense violence but also so much of it is essentially the everyday and that's very much a lens with which I look at my own paintings is that everything has potentially another story around the way that history intercuts with normal. In a way, there's nothing more political than the normal. I mean, if you watch Home and Away and Neighbours and not think about the massacre of Aboriginals within Australian landscape, 
it shows how the normal is an immense tonic to not think of political reality. So Hidden punctures some of that in a, a really exciting way. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? I need to be in the studio any weekday that I can possibly be in the studio. So Monday to Friday, I absolutely work around my daughter's school hours. So I get her ready to school. And then I get to the studio as soon as I can after then, say for 9, 9.30 um, would be great when I can. And then get back before she's back from school. And that suits me. I used to be an evening nighttime painter. My first painting, Boy in a Bed, was finished at sort of 4am, <laughs> literally the night before an exhibition it was going to be in. The paintings of Ushi, the, the interior series, were all painted late into the night. But over the years, since becoming a parent, I've realised the importance in particular of daylight and also the freshness. You, you don't have cognitive fatigue in those first few hours. So I want those hours to go to the painting. And then in that more sort of somnambulistic state of the evening, I can think about the work or look at photos and allow things to percolate. But um, I probably don't paint for more than three or four hours in a day. And over time, I realised that if I spend too many hours in a studio, I will undo what I've done. I will start second-guessing myself, doubting myself, erasing. Get too precious in a way. Get, yeah, absolutely. I, it was a Hemingway maxim of know what you're going to paint the next day or know what you're going to write the next day. And I think that idea of not being bored, not really being angry or too stressed, you know, these things need that flow to it so yes I'm, I'm somebody that thinks then paints 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 and uh, without interruption and then closes the studio door comes back to it and that first look at the work on the walls of what you've done is the most accurate one the least accurate one is what you think of it as you leave the studio you know often a work you think is great isn't when you see it the next day and vice versa so regular building up in layers and I'd say a particular routine is as soon as I come to the studio I change into my painting clothes and I put on music and the music is always just like every brushstroke really there's that intuitive thing of a nudge of oh I'd like to listen to this album and yeah it needs to be a particular album I don't like particularly playlists or random things you know the music I mentioned before as well as often work that um, I can paint to you don't want to be listening too intently to it it needs to be there in the background but not be Muzak. If you could live with just one work of art what would it be? I'd say this is probably uh, the hardest question I mean I know for a fact that um, I need to live with the paintings I've made of my own family and I know that's not what the question's about but in a way that's something that powerful, something powerful about painting is the way that it transcribes a person into a two-dimensional frame. And so I think it would be a painting of a person. And I, I guess the convalescent, I'd love to have if she was alive because we'd look at it together and love it together. It would probably have a different meaning now. Uh, so that would be Gwen John's convalescent. But actually... When I got a smartphone for the first time, I had a little image of a Fayum painting 
on the screensaver and it kind of um the fayum paintings speak to me in a way sort of above and beyond any individual single painter so gwen john transcribes her voice into a painting el greco transcribes his the fayum paintings transcribe a whole people if you like and a people of so many complexions ages they were painted as Funeral, in a way, paintings often from life and encaustic with hot wax, so they had to be put down quickly. And uh, John Berger wrote very beautifully in the shape of a pocket about them. I love what he said in that. Yeah, there's one particular, the one that was the screensaver, is is just known as a portrait of a lady. There is a print of it on my wall, and it's a, a beautiful young woman looking out at the viewer. And of course, I know full well that it was meant to be buried and shouldn't really be in museums, and (laughs) least of all my my own home. (laughs) But the idea of a person made into paint and having a life which isn't even about the language of portrait commissions, but is something which is purely there for the afterlife, I think is tremendously moving, and the fact that it is there physically in the substance i think there's an alchemy to the fire paintings that i could come back to again and again what's art for for me you know it's a cliche but yes art is a necessity for me now how i live because i've pinned my life on it from the age of 15 when i wanted to be an artist till now so it's a way of living and the way of essentially putting down in physical form all that I am, all that I think, essentially, until I die. And that's what the writers and musicians and artists do. So that's that's it. I guess it's the, the imprint of a person's life and how they've interpreted the world and what they want to leave at the end. Matthew, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. It's been lovely to revisit last couple of decades. Thank you. The new monograph on Matthew Krishnu's work is published by Anami Publishing and priced £30, €35 or $40. It's out now in the UK and Europe and published on the 20th of April in the US. An exhibition of Matthew's paintings is at Javeri Contemporary in Mumbai from the 13th of July until the 19th of August and a solo show at Tanya Layton in Los Angeles is provisionally set for the 11th of November to the 11th of December. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Please also subscribe to our sister podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producer is Amy Dawson. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and a big thank you to Matthew Krishnu. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.